This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome back to Behind the Markets here in Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, in the studio today with Lee Chen Ren. Our next guest is Anne-Marie Knott, who is the Robert and Barbara Frick Professor in Business at the Owen School. Business School at Washington University in St. Louis. Prior to her appointment at Olin, she was a assistant professor of management here at the Wharton School. Always great to get former Wharton professors back on the show. Thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure to join you, Jeremy. Thank you so much for having me. And so you're focused, uh, you have a book, How Innovation Really Works, uh, sort of looking at the connection between sort of management and, and finance. How did you get that transition from management to finance here? <laughs> it's a long story. Let me see if I can be brief about it. But um, I came up with a measure of uh, companies' R&D productivity, um, and we'll probably have lots of opportunities to say more about that. Um, and um, uh, what's cool about it is that it predicts um, growth as well as market value. And I went to firms with it, and I thought they would be jumping for joy to have this measure, and they actually weren't. <laughs> Um, they said that uh, the things that I was proposing to them, they couldn't do because the investors would kill them. I said, well, that's just crazy. Why would investors kill you for something that's in their best interest? Uh, and that's when I realized I needed to understand how to connect with the investors as well. And so you, you do a lot of work around something you call RQ for research quotient. quotient. And so is this the measure that you were going to the companies with that, that they were worried about? That's exactly right. So research quotient, it was originally called IQ. For, uh, to, it's, it, I think of it as the company equivalent of individual IQ. Um, that was trademarked, so I switched to RQ, so research quotient. Um, and um, it's a very cool measure that um, captures the productivity of companies' R&D. So it translates their R&D spending into growth and market value, as I said. Hi, um, Professor. Uh, in your book, you know, could you quickly summarize, like, from your point of view, like, how innovation really works? And also, you have some um, different measures of innovation. Like, how do we measure innovation? Uh, so those are a couple of questions. So let's start with the innovation, how innovation is measured um, typically. So often, particularly investors, I believe, think that R&D is the primary measure of innovation. Uh, and if that you know, if everybody were identical, that would be a reasonable measure. Um, it turns out co- companies are different. <laughs> Investment opportunity comes from the fact that companies are different. Um, so um, there's a study each year that's done by Strategy and formerly Booz. Uh, each year they find that there's no correlation between companies' R&D spending and growth. And the reason is they're missing how productive uh, companies are with their R&D. Other measures of innovation that you use, the most common measure in uh, the academic literature is patents. Um, you know, the problem that we have with patents is that there uh, there's two problems. One is only 50% of firms that do R&D file any patents at all. They prefer to protect their innovations through uh, trade secrets. Uh, the other reason is that patents aren't of uniform value. So 10% of patents account for 85% of the economic value of patents. So it's not a very reliable measure. You have a... Oh, sorry. 
No, I was forgetting the second question. So I was <laughs> yes, I, I think uh, in terms of how innovation really works, like you know, quick summary, like uh, how, you know, from from your book. And, and and related to this is, I mean, there's we we were at the beginning of the show, with Professor Siegel. We talked about we had a very good productivity number recently. You know, people have been worried about that our firms investing enough for innovation. You actually in, in the in the media and popular is always you know railing on firms for doing buybacks and not investing in their companies. And you see, you have. Some some data saying that there's been a 65% decline in companies' research quotas, and you're trying to reverse that. So maybe sort of talk to that a little bit. I would love to talk to that. That's, that's my key mission. So once I developed this measure, I was able to estimate it for all publicly traded firms going back to 1972. And, and um, you know, the two things that I looked at were how similar are firms, so not very similar. And the other was I found a 65% decline. And what's what's really important about that decline is that um, it's correlated with GDP growth. Um, and so my belief is that uh, if I can restore companies to RQs, I can, we can actually revive economic growth. Uh, and the reason I believe that is that RQ measure maps onto um, the productivity construct in Paul Romer's theory. This is the theory for which he just won the Nobel Prize in December uh, that links R&D to growth. Um, so as I said, my mission is to try to get firms to reverse that. And the, the purpose of the book was to help understand what makes companies high and low on this measure. And so each chapter in the book um, takes perceived wisdom or conventional wisdom about what makes firms innovative and actually tests whether those things are aligned with RQ. And in general, the prescriptions that are out there are not correct. <laughs> uh, and, and nobody's known this for years. And that's the reason why we, you know, the, the RQ has declined because nobody was able to demonstrate that, or nobody was able to know even that we were declining because they were all adhering to what seemed to be, con- you know, the, the right wisdom about what makes you innovative. Hi, Professor. So just to follow up, um, in terms of what are the companies that are doing well? Like I know you mentioned the, this decline, but in this environment, for example, like um, multinational companies able to do better or or not necessary? Like what are the ones that actually stand out uh, among this declining trend? Oh, okay. So I, I put together a list each year of the top 50. Um, my favorite company on this list is a company called Medicines Company. They're not um, multinational at all. They're they're rather small, but you know they do everything in house. They're very creative about. You know, they're very efficient about the way that they do things. They're very creative. There's I, I have an article in Forbes on that uh, from last month uh, that that captures that more completely. Um, the the things the trends that have. Uh, oh, so but getting back to your multinational question, in general, what happens if firms are really productive on this measure, they grow, and so they become multinational. So in general, multinationals should be, on average, they should be higher on this measure than non-multinational okay. firms. But I haven't looked at that directly. So it's it's probably a result of, you know, being innovative exactly. and become a, a multinational. Um, That's right. So um, this is really interesting. I w- also want to follow up that uh, in, in your paper that you mentioned that uh, bigger firms are uh, usually is more productive. Um, is it um, historically always been like that? Um, and also, I want to tie this into you know the size factor because if indeed you know bigger firms are more productive, then does that mean you know um, bigger firms on average you know should outperform than smaller firms? which is a little bit counterintuitive because usually we um, think about smaller firms, you know, kind of uh, undervalued. Uh, okay, so there's two things that are going on. One is that large firms are more productive on average. 
Um, but what happens, uh, what happens over time is that ultimately investors start to recognize the value of RQ, not RQ per se, but firms become, you know, their profit growth becomes reliable. And so they know how to value those firms. The reason that, um, uh, the reason that small firms will outperform the market is because investors don't quite understand their returns. There are in our queue just yet because their returns haven't become stabilized. And so that's, you know, there's mispricing in the market because of that. So that gives you the opportunity for high returns. Of course, there's the other ones that are, you know, that are un- less productive. And so, you know, I think it's higher variance in returns. Yeah. Where do you think the companies, you know, don't understand? So, I, if you're one of your main missions coming back to how do we actually get economic growth going higher, um, what where do you think they're they're worried or they're they're sort of misperceptions lay there? Well, but, uh, so the the first step is that they don't know how to value their R and D, um, and so if you don't have a compass, it's very hard to know what are the right things to do. Yeah. Um, so the first thing is just to adopt the measure. Um, I've gotten some pushback that firms don't want to adopt a measure if they don't know in advance whether they're going to look good on it. <laughs> yep. So that's kind of frustrating. Um, but once that, once you have the measure, you can use it as a you can use it as a compass, as I said. And uh, the book will give you gives you some practices that across the board seem to make firms more productive on this measure um to make their R&D more productive. Uh, one of the big trends that has hurt firms is outsourcing. So the productivity of outsourced R&D is zero. <laughs> so the more outsourcing you do, the less R&D product, the lower your R&D productivity, your lower your RQ. We, we've been talking about this measure, but maybe you could give us, give, describe how it's calculated a little bit, just so people get a sense of what, what does this RQ actually measure? Oh, that's really important. Yes, we should have done that, I guess. So, uh, it's the technical term for it, and comes from economics. Is it's the output elasticity of uh, firms R and D. So I don't want to get too much into the details, but um, if, if for those of you who've had economics, there's something called the production function. So typically, when we see it in our you know our textbook, we see that there's there's capital and labor. And we understand the role of the production function is to understand the relationship between capital and labor and um, uh, output revenues. Uh, so each of those terms, each of those inputs has an elasticity, uh, which means the productivity of that input in generating output. So RQ is the exact same idea, but it's applied to R&D as opposed to capital and labor. So, th- so that's the kind of the economics behind it, but it has a really nice tangible meaning uh, for those who don't have economics, which is the percentage increase in revenues that you get by increasing your R&D by 1%. Right. And so the firms who are really good at spending R&D, ramping up their their sales by like 3% when they're only increasing R&D 1%, they're going to have a very high RQ. Um, because their sales are responding much faster than that growth in in R and D. Yeah, it's not faster. It's it's not faster. It's it's you know more. Just in general, is it growing? Is the R and G generating growth? It's not the speed of the growth. It's the relationship between R and D and growth. Um, it's only for everything else. That's what's important about the estimation process. Yeah. So, Professor, you also mentioned that you know from your study, you show that this measure has uh, some predictive power in terms of a firm's uh, you know stock market returns. I do want to understand a little bit, like, so 
you know, what's the story behind this pre- predictability? Is it some kind of behavior study? Why this is not priced in, or something else? Um, okay, so the predictive power comes from Romer's theory, um, and you can actually write out the. You can actually write out. Um, I just ex- explained that the production function tells you how much changing your R and D will change your revenues. Once you know that, you can figure out um, uh, how profitable you'll be from that. Um, and once you and how much growth you'll get from that, and once you know those two things, that will predict market value. So the mispricing comes in when investors don't know the RQ because they don't know how to relate R and D to the growth. Mm-hmm. So um, this is pretty new. So in in traditional um, kind of equity research, we have you know these typical traditional factors like value, momentum, quality. Uh, from your point of view, like based on your research, is this more or of a quality, or it's something which is really different from a typical quality measure? Before you answer that, let me just reintroduce our guest. You are listening to Behind the Markets and Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. We have Lee Chen Ren talking to Anne-Marie Knott, the Robert and Barbara Frick Professor in Business at the Olin Business School at Washington University and author of How Innovation Really Works. And is going back to the Lee Chen's question about what is this RQ quotient? Is it really some other factor? Is it tied to other this academic factors of value, momentum, quality? That's a great question. The, um, the neat thing about this measure is that it's got these economic fundamentals, so you actually know exactly what you're measuring. Um, uh, and it's only loosely correlated with other measures. So quality is in a kind of an amorphous concept, um, and I assume that it's... Uh, well, I assume is it that it's, equity, those kind of measures? Yeah, so, so when we did this study, when we did the, you know, the finance study to look at its predictive power for returns, we included all the, all the main things in that, um, including momentum, which is the one people get most interested in. And what we found is that RQ has twice the predictive power of momentum when we included both in the same, in the same study. And momentum is one of those factors that people say is one of the more more robust and and stronger factors. That's a big, it's a big statement. Yeah, there. Is, yeah, we were excited about that. Is there a place? I mean, you mentioned putting together this list of fifty stocks that score highest on your RQ. Um, is there a, a place people can stay attuned to that list of fifty stocks? Uh, that's a that's a great question. I think it's on my, I think it's on my website, but I'll double check that. <laughs> yeah, no. It's a, as people look at it, I'm curious myself to see if the big companies. You know, every day we hear of Amazon as being you yeah. know, the, the, reinvesting all their profits. Every dollar they make, they don't show profits; they just reinvest. And I'm wondering if that's uh, maybe on your we list. can highlight uh, in our blog when we write about this uh, radio. Uh, yeah, oh, sure. Just... Yeah, no, I'd be happy to have you share that. Um, uh, yeah, so let me just say a little bit more about that portfolio. I'm not a finance person, so um, you know, any portfolio I put together is pretty naive. Um, but when I wanted to get investor attention, what I said is, you know, what is something that I could put together that would get their attention? And I said, okay, let's just take the top 50 firms on uh, this measure in each year. And I do that going back to 1972. Uh, and each year, so put, you know, four when 2% of, um, you know, notional assets into that, and at the end of the year, sell those off and buy the new 50. I should say that these are pretty stable. So about 60, you know, 67% of firms stay in the portfolio from year to year. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, I picked July 1973, uh, let that portfolio run until... Um, December 2015, um, 
and the market return was 42,000 and or no no the market return for the this portfolio was 9x the market it was uh, 78,000 for the market which is actually pretty good and it was 708,000 for this portfolio is that uh, a equal weighted to equal weighted comparison it, yes, it's equal weighted annual rebalance. Yep, yep. Yeah, interesting. Uh, and they have the same beta, which I thought was interesting. So, uh, yeah, we. I think it, this is really interesting. Uh, I do want to have a quick question because the, um, uh, in the U.S., uh, uh, you did your study on the U.S. Have you looked at uh, international, or is this measure like harder to come come up with for international companies? Uh, so, two things. I look at the uh, firms that are traded on the U.S. exchanges, so that includes a sizable number of foreign firms, um, non-U.S., you know, non-domestic firms. Uh, so I, I do have their RQs. The problem that I had when I tried to work with a global database is um, accounting standards. So I need the next step is to actually um, adjust from GAAP to, is it ISRA? Is that right? Um, IFRA, whatever the international standards are. Uh, and then, then I definitely can do it. it. It is comparable. Very good. So where where do you think the the, the future of this RQ research goes? I mean, what's your on your agenda for how – so you got to do the, some of the international tests. I mean, is there – how else do you think people, you know, should try to take this research and either apply it in, in a finance world or, or, or what, what sort of the next avenues? So I, so I have a few goals in order to be able to reverse the – the RQ decline. One is for firms to start using it just to track how they're doing. Um, the second is to start adopting the practices that we know are higher RQ than the corresponding low RQ practices. So start start bringing R and D back in house for an, as an example. Um, and then I, uh, continuing with the firm size, every time I have an opportunity to get data that I can correlate with um, RQ, I do that. So. Um, continuing to generate new knowledge about what firms should be doing. But what I would love on the investor side is for them to start using RQ to make their investment decisions so that firms will actually have, um, will actually have an incentive to, you know, move these, you know, to move their RQ to actually reverse the decline. Uh, and I actually met with a CTO who said he had checked with his investor relations person to see if they were using, you know, if anybody was asking about their RQ, and they said no, and they said, so we don't need to use it. <laughs> so investors are my heroes. <laughs> no, I, I think that's where we, you know, we could uh, work on this together because uh, I am. Uh, I would love that. Yeah, uh, I'm actively looking at uh, the 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 openly sourced data that you had uh, available, and uh, you know, I think really like some of the, for example, quality as a factor, you know the. It was not really formulated 15 years ago, only through all these, you know, research through looking at how profitability relate to uh, investment decisions, that quality finally becomes a little bit more consensus, like in the last five years. And, you know, I the way I think of RQ is that in the next 10 or 15 years, there will be another factor which, you know, be kind of, you know, RQ, which is different from all the traditional factors. But... But just to, I, I think this is you know very likely as we do more research and understand this this more as as you can see you know investors they like to look at the top line numbers you know income you know shares uh, earnings per share but they don't go 
you know, deeper and look at the underlying, uh, you know, usually called, you know, buried in the balance sheet numbers. Now, I do want to follow up a little bit. Um, well, we're actually uh, running out of time, Lee Chen. So this okay. is unfortunate. I'm going to have to <laughs> cut you time. off uh, from the conversation. I know we've been really enjoying the, pr- the conversation with Professor Anne-Marie Knott, the Robert and Barbara Frick Professor of uh, Business at the Olin Business School, Washington University, former one professor. I think it's interesting, just quickly summarizing, I mean, everybody talks about value as being one of the long-term factors. Growth has been one of these troubled factors. And if you think about uh, Anne-Marie's research here on sort of innovation and R&D spending as this new growth factor, it is an interesting line of research. So I'm glad, Anne-Marie, we connected. And thanks for, for coming on the show to talk to us today. Thank you both. And work together. Yes, we will. (laughs) Continue the conversation. Thank you so much. I'm going to welcome Christopher Jones, Chief Investment Officer, Executive Vice President of Investment Management at advisory firm Financial Engines. Uh, And Chris has worked closely with Nobel Laureate uh, and Financial Engines founder Bill Sharp. I think they've written a book together that I was uh, reading through. Chris, welcome to our program. Well, thank you for having me. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself, how you're, a little bit about your career, how you got to financial engines, and and uh, and just your, your career trajectory there. Sure. Well, I uh, joined financial engines quite some time ago. I joined as the third employee back in the end of 1996, uh, just a couple of months after the company was founded by Bill Sharp and Joe Grunfest. Uh, Bill is obviously a Nobel laureate and former professor of finance at Stanford University. Joe Grunfest uh, is a uh, current uh, professor of law at Stanford University and a former SEC commissioner. Uh, and they hired me uh, along with Jeff Magincola, our first CEO, and, and uh, another uh, gentleman by the name of John Watson at the end of 1996. Uh, my role was really to build up a team of people around Bill to develop really what was the first implementation of automated investing for individual investors. We were sort of the original robo-advisor, if you will, uh, and put into the market in 1998 uh, a series of services that provided personalized investment advice for individual investors, primarily those in in, in 401k plans. Uh, It was uh, quite quite an interesting opportunity and, and one for me. I was 28 at the time and had been in the litigation consulting world for a few years uh, helping prepare academic witnesses to provide uh, testimony at uh, at trials that you would typically read about on the front page of the Wall Street Journal, uh, but decided that career track was not what I was interested in. Was looking to do something entrepreneurial, and and just so happened that financial engines came into being that summer of of '96, and my timing was fortuitous. So uh, it's it's been quite an interesting now almost 23 year ride. What do you think about the, you know, you mentioned being the early uh, online robo. There's been this proliferation of a lot of the online services. I mean, how do you see the future evolving? You're doing with a lot of the 401k participants. Um, where, how do you see just the need for that online experience or just the, the evolvement of the, the industry shaping up? Yeah. Well, as I, as I mentioned uh, in our history, when we started introducing discretionary investment management, uh, managed accounts back in, in 2003, 2004, uh, one of the things that we recognized early on was that there was a diversity when it comes to how people like to receive investment advice. There's a minority of the population out there that is very interested in doing things online, and that minority has grown in size, but it's still quite a bit of a, a minority overall. Uh, where interacting online, getting recommendations, implementing those recommendations online, and so forth is is fairly uh, acceptable to them. 
But we found in our experience there were lots of people who wanted to talk to a human being as part of that. So beginning in 2004, we started building out a call center uh, populated, we call it our National Advisor Center, populated by investment advisors that people could call anytime uh, to talk about their situation, uh, to get questions answered, to uh, perhaps talk about what's going on in the market or how that impacts their, their goals or their, their portfolios. Uh, that National Advisor Center is now well over 100 advisors. Uh, it's based in Phoenix uh, for financial engines. And in addition to that, we found over time that there was a cohort of people out there that were interested in getting investment advice, not uh, by through talking over the phone, but actually having face-to-face conversations with an advisor. And in many situations, they were looking for a dedicated advisor, somebody who would work with them on an ongoing basis, that they could look in the eye, get to know them and their family. And so uh, about five years ago now, we acquired a company called the Mutual Fund Store, which was a national RIA that had uh, branch offices in about 150 or so locations around the country. And then most recently, uh, last year, we merged with Edelman Financial Services, which was another large national RIA that also had about 40 or 50 branch offices around the country. Uh, And we've now combined all of those. So in addition to our National Advisor Center in Phoenix, where people can talk over the phone, we have about 180 locations where people can go into an office, sit down, and have uh, interactions uh, face-to-face with an investment advisor. Uh, we really see the blend of technology and humans as really the future. Um, I think the current crop of robos out there that have primarily focused on a pure digital experience are doing some interesting things from a customer experience standpoint. They've got some really nice user uh, interfaces. They've done a nice job of making it very convenient for people to, to sign up for these kinds of services. But ultimately, when you're talking about hard-earned nest eggs of families who are 50, 60 years old, have been working for 20 or 30 years. They've worked really hard to build up this nest egg. It's very, very difficult for those families to hand over a half a million dollars or three quarters of a million dollars to someone where there's not a face that they can uh, uh, speak with or, or talk to. I think, you know, when you're talking about millennials that have 20 or $30,000, that's a different trade-off, a different trust barrier, if you will. What we found is for the majority of the assets out there uh, for people who are looking for help, it's typically for folks who are over 50. The great majority of them are looking for investment advice with a human being being part of the delivery process. Chris, we're running out of time. Um, any other things you would like to highlight about the exciting areas of new research for financial engines, financial engines and where people can find more about what you are doing? Sure. Well, um, there's uh, quite a bit of information about uh, the company uh, Edelman Financial Engines on our website, so I would encourage people to take a look there if they're interested in finding out more. I would say in terms of the future of the advice business, if we go back 20 years ago, the traditional advice model was one where you were paying a highly educated individual, a CFP or a CFA, uh, to sit down with you, spend hours, understanding your situation, coming up with an investment recommendation, implementing that recommendation. That's a relatively expensive and time-consuming process, and it's one that the consequence of that meant that most people who are getting objective, high-quality investment advice were relatively affluent people, relatively affluent households. Uh, What I'm very proud of at at Edelman Financial Engines is that we have really, I think, shifted the bar there quite dramatically 
through the use of technology to allow to provide allow us to provide personalized investment advice to a much wider range of people. So unlike most RIAs where the typical investment balance is a million dollars or more, our average client has $170,000 with us. The median client is only about 60,000. So we work with a very, very large and diverse population of people, and we're able to do that and provide high-quality personalized investment advice because we have built over 20 years a really robust technology platform that allows us to generate those recommendations very quickly and easily and tailor them to the needs of, of individuals. I think the future means that that kind of technology is going to continue to play a really big role. The delivery of the advice doesn't necessarily have to be done through technology. That can still be done through human beings. And I think one of the key assets that our firm has is we have hundreds and hundreds of really skilled, very capable uh, financial planners and advisors that are able to help people with these tough questions. Chris, awesome. Very much. Thank you for joining us. It was great meeting you. Um, Hopefully we keep in touch. You've been listening to Behind the Markets on SiriusXM 132. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Thanks to Lee Chen here. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit WisdomTree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Please note, I'm registered representative for Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer of investment products, and the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree's affiliates.